would invite you to grab your Bibles and uh, turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be back in Luke's Gospel this morning. And uh, I'm going to invite uh, Daniel Bircham up here to read our text for us. And I want to just prepare you. We have a longer passage to read together this morning. We've got about 30 verses. But uh, as the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the young Timothy, he, he challenged him and he said, Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And so we believe that this is a, is a valuable part of our gathering each week where we sit under the reading of the Scriptures. And so, uh, buckle up and uh, stand with us together as we give attention to the reading of God's Word in Luke chapter 2, and we will be reading from verses 22 through 52. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up, according, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at, at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then, as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up, to, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in, dist in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. 
And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you this morning for your grace that has been poured out in abundance. We thank you for this gathering of your people that you have united us together, not based on anything that we have done or anything that we have earned, but only because of the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ that unites us to yourself and to each other as brothers and sisters. So I pray this morning as we look at this text written down so long ago, but that yet holds significance for us, give us eyes to see our Savior, give us hearts to believe these words. Pray that you would allow us to submit all of our lives to your authority, to your kingship, and ultimately to your word this morning. So guide us, give us insight, give us wisdom, let your spirit work in us as you please. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, if you've been here, Over the past number of weeks, you probably recognize that we did launch into this new study through the Gospel of Luke during the Advent season, as it is our practice here at The Crossing to regularly preach through books of the Bible. We have embarked on this tall task of walking through the Gospel according to Luke. Uh, It is the longest of our four Gospels, and so that means we're probably going to be here for a little while. We'll take some breaks here and there over different, different times, but uh, it's probably going to take us a couple years to really work through this book. But it's going to be a great journey, and I'm excited for it. Uh, Luke offers to us a very detailed historical accounting of the life of Jesus. And he did that, as he told us in the beginning, so that Theophilus and us today would be certain of the things that took place. And so here we, we look this morning at these two stories, these stories from the young Jesus, We see here the only recorded story of Jesus' childhood offered to us here. There's some goofy stuff in some of the apocryphal gospels, but uh, in the canon of Scripture, this is the only recorded scene from Jesus' childhood. So we see first Jesus as a baby and then Jesus as a youth here in these two passages. So we're going to look at these two sections, verses 22 through 40, where we will see the witness of a faithful legacy. And then uh, in verses 41 to 52, we will look at the story of the lost boy who was in the right place. The lost boy in the right place. And so uh, what what we'll see ultimately as as we work through these narratives is that Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of Israel's hope for their Messiah. And only as we are those who are longing for redemption can we be prepared to recognize Him for who He is as the divine Son of Man. So let's jump into this passage here as we look at the witness of this faithful legacy. Uh, Luke sets for us the setting here. As uh, we see Mary and Joseph as they bring Jesus, their newborn son, to the temple in Jerusalem. And one thing that we notice about this family is that they are uh, fervently committed to obeying and following the law. And the law required of 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 a mother... Uh, Shortly after giving birth, about six weeks later, uh, the mother was required to give a sacrifice uh, in the temple. 
There was a purification ritual that had to occur. If you're interested in the details of that, you can look it up in Leviticus chapter 12 that outlines that. But Luke also connects here also a secondary uh, thing that's happening, which is the dedication of the firstborn, which was first established back in Exodus chapter 13, where each firstborn was to be presented and dedicated and given to the Lord. So we see multiple duties that are being taken care of during this trip to Jerusalem. The dedication of their son and the sacrifice that is necessary for purification. And the sacrifice that's specified here is that of, of, of uh, either two turtle doves or uh, two pigeons. And uh, just a, a note there, it, it seems as though Luke specifies that to highlight where uh, Mary and Joseph come from. The normal sacrifice was to be a lamb and, and a bird also, but uh, the concession in the law was for those that couldn't afford that, they could offer two birds instead. So it appears that Mary and Joseph uh, are, are in a, a poorer economic condition, and so Jesus is one that comes from an, uh, an unwealthy family. But they, in faithfulness to the law, head to Jerusalem to obey the words of the Torah and take care of these ritual and ceremonial um, issues that have to take place. And so it's within this setting that we are introduced to these two what are actually rather interesting characters. I was fascinated looking at and studying these two characters this week. Um, you know, every community kind of has kind of iconic figures that stand out for one reason or another. Some people, you know, will stand out just because of their mere eccentricity. You know, not maybe because of their celebrity, but just because of their uniqueness that everybody kind of remembers and recognizes them. Here locally, I could think of, uh, do you guys remember the guy, I haven't seen him in a long time, but the guy that used to uh, dance the sign down at Harmony in college? Yeah, everybody knows him. He became like kind of a Fort Collins icon. He just had so much passion and energy. He was just fun to watch. Um, but uh, you, you think of uh, the, the Denver Broncos. They had this uh, super fan, the barrel man back in the day, right? You, you guys remember him? It was a guy that showed up to every game wearing nothing but a barrel. Well, at least I, I hope he maybe had something on underneath, but uh, uh, mostly it was just he, he would wear no shirt no matter the weather, he'd just be wearing his barrel. He was, he was the barrel man. Uh, I grew up over in Grand Junction, and uh, we have the most Grand Junction thing ever. Uh, this guy that was there became a, a legend back in the 90s. Anybody that grew up or was, was living in Grand Junction in the 90s knows this guy. Uh, he was affectionately known as Speedo Man, and uh, he was... <laughs> Honest, on, honestly, you can look it up, but uh, he, would, he would walk around town all the time and you'd see him everywhere wearing nothing but a Speedo, a um, man's swimming suit. In the winter, on the, on the really cold days, sometimes he would put uh, uh, like sweatpants on or something, but he would always have his Speedo on over top of it as well, just to, <laughs> to keep the image going. So he was a unique individual, but uh, if you ask anybody, they, they'll tell you, oh yeah, I, I, know, I know about Speedo Man. And I can't help to think that Simeon and Anna in the temple courts, were kind of recognized like that. For very different reasons, of course, but I, I imagine that they were probably figures, these iconic, stable people who were just there regularly all the time. If you went to the temple very often, you knew and recognized Simeon and Anna. And I imagine, the text doesn't say, but I imagine probably Luke in his unearthing of these things hears about the legend of, the, of, of these faithful saints and records this for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we're first introduced to this man, Simeon. And he starts off by saying he's just a guy from Jerusalem. There's a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. And he's not said to be a priest or really hold any real significant role. 
And it's not his prominent position that actually makes him significant in this story, but it's actually his spiritual posture that Luke highlights for us. It says that he was righteous and devout. He was reverent. He was a pious man. He was one that was, was seen as very religiously fervent. But it also says that he lived his life as one waiting for the consolation of Israel. Well, what does that mean? I think that reference alludes to the likelihood that Simeon was very familiar with the Old Testament prophets and how they spoke of a a future restoration for the nation of Israel. Possibly in passages like Isaiah 51 that says, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like a garden of the Lord. So Simeon was one who was, who was waiting and anticipating for that to come. He was hopeful, and he was devoted to this end. Luke also tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And Luke highlights the role of the Spirit in, in, in many places, almost as much as any New Testament author, that we see the role of the Holy Spirit working through individuals over and over again. This isn't the first time, but, but Simeon is one who has the Holy Spirit on him. And as he went about his business, and he was often seen in the temple courts, he was one that was well-recognized. People probably knew about Simeon, that devoted, faithful old guy that was always around. But I think he might have also been known for kind of this crazy idea that he had. Maybe people questioned, you know, and maybe were even became skeptical of him because he believed that God had told him that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. What would you think about a guy like that, that walked around saying that about himself? As if he had some special insight, some special knowledge. Oh yeah, there's Simeon walking around. He's still here, so I guess the Messiah hasn't come, right? You know, maybe people viewed him with skepticism. Possibly, Simeon became viewed by some as that crazy old guy at the temple. But on this day, something spectacular was revealed to Simeon. Something amazing that he has been waiting for his whole life, it appears. He sees this young couple bring their baby boy, just a few weeks old, into the temple courts like so many parents would do. Even on that day, there was probably many parents who were doing the same ritual, bringing their child to be dedicated or to to come and, and, and observe the ceremonial cleansing. This was a common practice that would occur regularly. But on this day... The Holy Spirit has moved Simeon to come into the temple courts. And in that moment, as he sees this young couple through the work of the Spirit, it is revealed to him, this is the one that you have been waiting for. And Simeon reacts with excitement, with joy. It says that he approaches Mary and Joseph and he takes the child in his arms And in what appears to be kind of uncontrolled joy, he declares what is really this song over him. I don't know how you new parents, you new mothers would feel about the crazy old guy coming up and grabbing your baby and starting to sing over him. Might be a little weird. The scene is a little strange if we put ourselves in that position. But this is what Simeon does. And he declares this song over him. And Luke records for us multiple songs, right? We've looked at these things over the past few weeks. This is the third song 
of recognition of Jesus that Luke records for us. We saw back the uh, Magnificat of Mary. We saw the Benedictus of Zechariah. And here, if you're into the Latin titles that have been assigned to these, this is the Nunc Dimittis, for those that care. This is, this is Simeon's song. And he speaks these words in response to encountering Jesus. In verse 29, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. What a declaration. He first starts by describing this personal peace that he is finding in this moment. He says, I can truly now rest in peace having seen the one who will bring the salvation that I've hoped for and that I've longed for. Do you see what he's saying? He's been waiting for this moment, for this one who would break into human history to bring about the restoration that was promised so long ago. And after years and years and years, centuries of silence, he's here. And as an old man, Simeon had seen Israel's oppression. He knows their history, one that was marked by recurring periods of enslavement, oppression, and exile. The empires of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and even now the Romans all held Israel under their dominion, and so they were a people waiting for a long time for deliverance, for healing, for comfort and consolation. And we don't know for sure whether Simeon viewed this, this comfort and consolation to come as merely political, I think as one probably filled with the Spirit, that he understood that there was far more bound up with this. And as he sees this baby, he knows that it is finally here, and so this is his response. He says, okay, I can go now. I can depart. I have the peace that I, that I found. You could say he was the first one to ever use the phrase, peace out. He is ready to die because he is assured of the future. And it is the certainty of the Christian hope that allows us to face the end of life with peace. Christians should be those who can die well. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. He said, give a man assurance of heaven and he will be eager to enjoy it. But while he doubts his own security, he will be satisfied to linger here. So are you longing for consolation, for comfort, for redemption? And thus, are you prepared, like Simeon, to recognize Jesus for who He truly is? Or have you grown satisfied with this life here? Have you bought into the cultural narrative, you only live once, so you might as well get everything you can out of it? But if we rightly perceive who Jesus is and what He has promised and what He ultimately brings, then we don't have to settle for merely this broken world in the state that it is, but we live for another kingdom, for a better day, the hope of ultimate restoration and renewal of this world. And Simeon declares this over Jesus, that He's the one that's going to do this. He is going to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for Israel which is a profound declaration here in the temple. The place, the center of Israel's life, it's there that it's declared that, that what Jesus comes to bring is actually something that's going to be for all nations, for all peoples. 
And it's going to be through Jesus that's ultimately going to be the glory of the nation, not merely just their beautiful temple mount. And so the child's father and his mother, are, they're, they're amazed at what is said about him. They're trying to make sense of this. And we see this over and over. As much as Mary and Joseph have already gone through with seeing angels and seeing these things declared and seeing this miraculous birth, there's still the sense of, of continuing to marvel at the, the magnitude and the significance of this. Which just gives us hope. We never have it all figured out. There's more to be uh, amazed by and, and understand as we think about who Jesus is. Even his parents are continuing to marvel and grow in their understanding of this. But then Simeon's song gets kind of a little weird if you, if, if, if you read it directly. He then turns to Mary and he says this to her. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's kind of a weird thing to say to a new mom, right? <laughs> oh, what a beautiful little child. Oh, he's so cute. This child is going to have a sword pierce through your soul. I could just picture maybe Mary being like, okay, Joseph, get our kid, let's go. Let's get away from this guy. Come on, right? It's almost this enigmatic, almost eerie statement from this old guy. But in Luke's writing, these words of Simeon function as a prophetic warning of the reckoning that Jesus will bring. He will draw a line in the sand. Who he is and what he, can, what he will do cannot simply be ignored. He can't be written off. But because of him, many will fall in unbelief and many others will rise in faith. And so here we see a foreshadowing of the opposition that will occur against Jesus' ministry in the years to come. And a reminder to us, of those who follow Jesus, the opposition that likely we will face. Because of the universal impact and the reckoning that Jesus brings to all people. And so we'll see this play out over the course of this story, and we will continue, even today, to see this play out in human history and in our world. There is no, new, there's no neutrality when it comes to recognizing who Jesus is. Everyone must pick a side. You will either bow in humble allegiance to this King, or... Be condemned in your rejection of Him. There's no just sitting on the sidelines, not caring. You know, I think tomorrow night is the uh, college football national championship, right? In that stadium tomorrow night, there's going to be two sides very clearly lined out. Those who are, are, are rooting for their team, who are bleeding for their bulldogs, and then the, the other side pulling for the underdog, the, the TCU, what is it, Horned Frogs? There's going to be uh, so, some passionate fans who are lined up who have a vested interest in what happens in that game. But for me, like, I don't care. I don't know. I don't even know if I'm going to watch it or not. Maybe I will. But I don't have a dog or a toad in that fight. Um, you know, it's just kind of like, you know, I, I hope they all have fun, I guess. But nobody... <laughs> you like that? <laughs> but... But like, we don't have that, nobody has that privilege when it comes to Jesus. To just kind of say, oh, he's a, 
He's a great teacher. He has some interesting things to say. Um, I, I kind of like some of his wisdom. He has some, some, some clever one-liners. I don't know about some of, some of his other stuff. You know, I can kind of take it or leave it. Um, you know, I don't know. Jesus is, he, he's fine. Nobody, no, nobody has, can, t- can take up that position. And that's what, that's what this, this message of Simeon is saying. He is going to be the one that will ultimately reveal every human heart. And we will either bow before him as king or will we reject him as a myth? Or as C.S. Lewis said, everyone must declare that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. And this is the message that, that Simeon offers to Mary and Joseph about their child for them to ponder, to, for them to reflect on. We are also introduced to this other older saint, this elderly woman named Anna. It says that she was a prophetess, one of a number of women throughout the scriptures who are identified with this term, one who in some sense was a mouthpiece for God. And her family line is specified, as Luke details for us, but it's not incredibly significant other than just to to establish that she is a full-blooded Israelite. And Luke tells us that she is very old. Um, the language of the original text is, is a little ambiguous in terms of her exact age. Many of the translations uh, uh, clarify it, and if, if, read, you know, if the translation is correct, then she potentially was married around the age of 14 or 15, lived with her husband for seven years, and then was a, a widow for 84 years, which could put her upwards of 105 years old. Others would say, well, no, I think it's only specifying that she's made, she's made it up to 84 years. So somewhere she's between 84 and 105. Either way, she's an older lady. And what she has done for the past number of years is this, that she has never left the temple. She's been a faithful, steady presence at the temple, every day worshiping God, committing to the rhythm of fasting and prayer night and day regularly. Year after year, she is this dedicated, faithful presence. And she is presented in some sense as a, as a faithful and steadfast example of enduring faith that is ultimately vindicated. And just as a side note, I'm sorry, as, as I thought about this, I couldn't just help reflect on just the, the legacy of so many who have come before us. And I'm so thankful for that legacy of faithful saints who have endured and, 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 and gone on to the end. When I read of Anna, I can't help but think of a woman here, many of you know, Bernie Fuller. Uh, Bernie was one who was a part of this church since we moved into this building. She was formerly a part of, of Mountain Range here, and she joined up with the crossing and just continued to love and follow Jesus until she passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 93. If you knew Bernie, I mean, she, she loved Jesus. She loved to pray. She loved every kid that walked through these doors and to teach them about Jesus. For years and years, even as a widow, after her husband passed on, she was just a faithful, steady example to so many of what it means to live by faith. And I'm so thankful that this church, as we started out years ago as a very young congregation in many ways, that we now have the presence of, 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 of a generational uh, faithfulness here. So many that we can look to you know, the Jim and Ruby Gordons, the Don and Grace Moores, and so many who have, who, have, who have gone through the ups and downs of life, who have seen God's faithfulness through the good and the bad. 
and have still faithfully remained steadfast in their faith in Jesus. I'm so thankful for those. And Anna is one that is presented to us like that. A woman who just stayed committed and loved and sought for the day in which she would see the hope of this same redemption. And she also, at this point on this day, has the opportunity to recognize Jesus. It doesn't say exactly how she knew it, but maybe she heard Simeon's declaration and she believed it. Or maybe just through the work of the Spirit in her life as a, as a prophetess that she is also revealed that this is the one. And so she says that she gives thanks to God. She recognizes what God is doing through this child. And then it says she begins to speak about the child to those also who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see what she does? Just think about this. All these years doing the same thing, fasting, praying, this constant regular rhythm. People probably just would see Anna in passing. There she is again, year after year. But today, her faith and her waiting and her steadfastness is vindicated where she sees her Messiah. And what's her response? It says that she just begins to tell everyone that she can. She, she goes to those who also were looking for the redemption of Israel. Those that she also knew that in relationship that, 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 that were looking for this to come. And she, she declares that He's here. In many ways, she's one of the first evangelists for Jesus, which just reminds us, are we so impacted by the reality of what Christ has done, of His breaking into human history? After we have celebrated Christmas, have we just moved on, but are we so impacted by that reality that we want to share that with anyone who will listen? Do we look and find those also who we know who are longing for redemption, who, are, who have a heart and a desire for something more we have a heart to help them see where that can be found. But you see, both Simeon and Anna were in a place where they were prepared to recognize their Messiah because they were looking and longing for restoration. They were dissatisfied with the world and the way things were. They knew that God had offered them a better hope. And so if there is any deep longing in your heart, for comfort, for consolation, that this world has not been able to meet or satisfy, then maybe it's because God is drawing you to behold His Christ, the only one who can actually satisfy the longing of our heart. And so we see with both of these witnesses the legacy of their enduring faith. The beauty of holding fast to faith amidst the unseen and the longing for redemption. And so these two witnesses begin to show us the identity and the purpose of this child. And that's what this next story continues to reveal to us. As we see in this next narrative in verses 41 to 42, we see this lost boy who's in the right place. And this story occurs later on. Twelve years later, on another family trip to Jerusalem. And here they are heading up to Jerusalem for the event of Passover. Again, they are faithful to the Torah, to the law. And every year they are called to go up for the Passover feast. And so Jesus at this point is 12 years old, just a young boy. And after the festivities have concluded from the week, 
then they pack up and they head back home to Nazareth. They often traveled because this was kind of a national festival. They would travel in large caravans from different areas. Even big family entities would get together and caravan all the way on this long journey. And so, it tells us that Jesus stays behind in Jerusalem. He has more things to do. And so, the caravan takes off, and Mary and Joseph don't realize that he's missing for a whole day. And once they realize that he's not there, they begin to search for him. He's, he's got to be here amongst the family. He's probably playing with his cousins or something, maybe hanging out you know, at the back of the crew. And they search, and they, they can't find him. He's not there. And you can imagine the conversation that goes back and forth between Mary and Joseph. Hey, have, have you seen Jesus? No, I thought he was with you. Well, I'm pretty sure he was with you when we left. And you could be like, Joseph, how did you lose the Messiah? Come on. Like, if, if you're a parent and you've ever lost a child in a public place, you probably know this and can understand the sense of fear and, 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 and uncertainty that comes. A few years ago, uh, uh, we had an incident like this. I like to say, we lost our son, but uh, my wife probably, likes to, is, probably remembers it as I lost our son, but uh, that's neither here nor there. But uh, we were at Cabela's down in Denver, and... Uh, we were there just looking at stuff, checking out things at the, the, the huge, massive sporting store. And uh, I got distracted looking at, looking at something. And uh, Jess comes up and is like, where's Carson? And he's probably four or five at the time. And I said, oh, he's right. He, he's not here. Um, he's got to be here. He's got to be here. And we, we start looking around. I'm like, that's no big deal. He's, he's got to be here. We start looking and we can't find him anywhere. And as a parent, your heart starts raising. Like, Where is he? It was the only time we ever just almost started panicking, went to the front. They had to you know, shut down the door and don't let anybody out or in, the code Adam or whatever it is. I'm searching everywhere, go up to the top balcony, looking, looking, looking. And finally, I, I, I spot him all the way down and he's playing in the boats. He wasn't, he wasn't lost. Uh, he, he was doing just fine. But uh, as his parents, we were, it was probably only five or ten minutes, but it was a terrifying few minutes not knowing where our son was. Um, so you can only imagine for Mary... A whole day they've realized has gone by and they don't know where their son is. And so they head back a whole other day to Jerusalem. They return and they continue to search. And it's on the third day, probably a day on the trip out, a day on the trip back. And then on that third day, the next day, they are searching and they find Jesus finally. And Jesus is doing just fine. They find him in the temple. And he's there at 12 years old, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them asking them questions, they're responding, and everybody is just captivated by the wisdom of this young child. Who is this kid? How does he know all these things? What kind of, nobody ever asks questions like this, especially at this age. And his parents come in, and they're, they're astounded too, like, what are you doing? And so Mary goes up to Jesus, and she confronts him, and she says, son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I, we've been searching for you. We've been, we've been, we've been sick with, with fear and anxiety because you've been gone. And then, I've always been fascinated by Jesus' response here. And as a parent reading this, in some sense, I'm like, I don't know how I would respond if my kid like, said this to me. But, but he says this. He says, Mom, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Some other translations say, 
Didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? Could be literally translated. Didn't you know that I would be around the things of my father? If my son said that, I might be like, oh, you're getting, getting a little smart with me here. But, uh, but that's not the sense here with Jesus. For Jesus, this is an honest and truthful declaration to his mom that he knows that she needs to begin to understand. Because Jesus understands who he is, even at this age. And he understands his ultimate purpose that is going to captivate his life. He knows that he is in the right place. He is in his father's house. He knows who his father is because he has been in perfect relationship and unity with the father from eternity past. But he is, he is now the incarnate Son of God. He is beginning to reveal this even to his parents. And in this text, we are introduced to the confounding reality that this boy is the very Son of God. That He is fully divine, and yet He is also fully human. His humanity is also highlighted by Luke in the next sentence where it says that, that as they left and went back to Nazareth, he was submissive to his parents. And Jesus increases in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew like a normal boy would grow. He lived as a normal man. And yet, there is this unity of the divine and the human in ways that we can't fully grasp. But it is a mystery and a truth that we must affirm. We must continue to believe that Jesus is being revealed to us as the divine man. The, uh, here's your, your theological term for the, for, for the day. The word that often is used to describe this is the hypostatic union. And it's that mystery of the perfect union of the divine and the human nature of Jesus in one person. This is something that in the early church had to be wrestled with, and many kind of tried to describe it as maybe he had kind of uh, two people, or it was just kind of this mixing of, of, of things, where sometimes his divine overtook his others. But, but at the council, council of Chalcedon in 451, the church fathers came together and really tried to settle this, to clarify this for us, and I believe these words are still so important for us to affirm and believe today. And they said this, So following the Holy Fathers... We all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man. And this reality of Jesus as truly God and truly man, as, it is hard, as hard as it is for us to fully grasp, is essential if He is to be the rescuing Messiah that He was sent to be. He has to be the perfect, holy, sinless One. And He also has to be truly man. The true representative who could die in our place, the only perfect substitute for a fallen humanity. And Luke in his gospel and in this narrative is slowly beginning to reveal this astounding truth to us. A few years ago, there was an experiment that took place um, 
in which uh, there was this world-famous violinist named Joshua Bell. He's been touted as probably the best violinist of our day. And uh, he was in Washington, D.C., and what he did is he went down into a subway station there in D.C., and he posted up, just like any other street musician, and he took out his violin, only his violin cost about $3 million, and he began to play there in the subway station for anybody that would walk by. And he played the most amazing pieces of classical music, most intricate pieces And uh, there were others who kind of watched by and just kind of watched this experiment, and they kind of tracked what happened. And as Joshua Bell played for uh, just under an hour, there were uh, well over a thousand people who walked by during that time. And in the end, once he stopped, there were only six people who actually stopped for any time to actually listen to him. And he had set, set his, uh, his, his guitar case out, or violin case out there to uh, collect money. And over that time, Joshua Bell raised $32.17 during that hour. Or anybody that actually wanted to go to one of his concerts would pay, would, would, would pay you know, at least well over $100 just to go hear him play. He made 32 bucks an hour. And what, what this kind of interesting social experiment showed is that So oftentimes, people are so distracted, so drawn away by everything else, and so in their own little lane that they fail to recognize greatness, glory, and beauty, even if it's right there in front of them. And even that day, when Mary and Joseph came into the temple courts, how many people were there to to, to recognize him, to see him? Two Two old people. These two old folks who were were waiting, who were looking and longing for this, it was to them that God revealed His Messiah. So in your life, are you in a place where you recognize and you're able to recognize and see the glory and the majesty and the true identity of Jesus Christ? Or are you so caught up in your own life your own goals, your own endeavors that you fail to actually see Him. Fail to actually worship Him. Fail to recognize that God has come in human flesh to come and pay for our sins, to meet us amidst the wreckage of this broken and sinful world, to reveal Himself to us, to give us the hope of true restoration and true comfort. See, these two stories are connected by this common place, the temple. And Jesus, in both of these stories initially, is first received in what we would say positive ways at the temple. But as the story moves on, this place is going to become a place of conflict and ultimate rejection of this one. And it's because when Jesus comes, he comes to confront the thing that they held as central, the thing that they held as, as pivotal in their, in their life and their religion. He came to be that which the temple was ultimately pointing towards, but they weren't in a place to see it initially. But he came to confront their comfortable religion, their regular practices, and he came 
to be the fulfillment of all of those things? And the ultimate question is, how will they respond? And we'll see that as Simeon's prophecy declared, some would rise and many others would fall. But ultimately, when Jesus comes, every heart will be revealed. So the question is, are we a people who aren't satisfied with this life, with the simple pleasures of this world, the simple distractions that are all around us, but do we long for something more? Do we long for a kingdom to come in which righteousness will dwell? Because only as we long for something else, as we long for comfort and redemption like Simeon and Anna, will we be ready to accurately identify and recognize Jesus for who He truly is, the very Son of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for this text, for Your revealing work through Your Word. Thank You that You revealed Yourself to an old crazy man like Simeon, to a faithful old widow like Anna, that we could see this one glimpse into Your childhood, the childhood of Jesus where he knew who he was, he knew the purpose for which he was sent. That in the wisdom of the Father, from eternity past, the commitment to redeem a fallen people for himself, and he set himself towards that end that would one day ultimately lead him to ultimate rejection and to death on a cross. And I thank you that because of that, our eyes can be opened, that our hearts can be renewed, and for the longing of all of our hearts to fully be restored can only come through Him. And so we thank You for this. I pray that You would captivate us afresh this morning because of who You are, who Jesus is, that He is the only one that we can worship. He is the one that should captivate the very center of our life every day. We thank You, Father. We love You. Impress these truths on us this week, and we ask in the name of our Savior. Amen.